Harvard Divinity School. Stendhal Symposium. Conversations across religious boundaries, solidarity, resistance, and liberation in and through religious difference. April 19th, 2022. Sometimes the silence just tells you that you're ready to begin, huh? <laughs> okay. Um, all right, we're going to get started, everyone. It's great to see y'all. I feel like I'm just speaking to a room full of friends, so um, I, I appreciate y'all's presence. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today for the annual Stendhal Symposium. My name is Bilal Rahman. I'm the academics chair of the Harvard Divinity School Student Association, the organizer of tonight's event, and your MC. On behalf of the HDS Student Association, I welcome you to the 15th annual Stendhal Symposium which also marks the return of this event to campus after over three years. It's a joy to be here with each and every one of you today, including those joining virtually, and I thank you for your presence. As a reminder, I ask that members of the audience keep a mask on for the duration of the event. Thanks for your understanding. I wanna begin by recognizing the labor of the many people who made this event possible. First, I'd like to thank my peers in the HDSSA for their support throughout the many stages of planning tonight's event. Second, I'd like to extend a thanks to Katie Caponera in the Office of Student Life, who helped organize the event today. I'd like to tell, <laughs> I'd like to tell Katie, and I think those who've worked with her believe this too, that without her presence at HDS, this building would probably fall apart. <laughs> I especially want to thank the Stendhal Reviewing Committee made up of the following students. Akhil Gopi, Flo Sharp, Seth Buell, Swati Chohan, and Siana Monet, as well as our instructor and faculty reviewers, Dean Melissa Bartholomew and Professor Norhezatul Jamil. Each of these reviewers showed great care and diligence in engaging with the wonderful submissions we received. I thank Dean Bartholomew and Professor Jamil also for their support and guidance throughout the review and planning process. <clears throat> Finally, I want to say thank you to Professor Myra Rivera for graciously agreeing to serve as the faculty respondent today. I ask that you join me in recognizing the work of these aforementioned individuals, and that you also join me now in congratulating the four winners of this year's Stendhal Symposium, Alex Baskin, Azani Creeks, Maya Pace, and Tianyi Yuan. Please join me in, in congratulating these people. To give a brief overview of tonight's event, we'll have the four student presentations of roughly 10 to 15 minutes each. After the first three presentations, we're going to take a couple minute intermission, um, and we'll reconvene for the last student presentation, after which Professor Rivera will deliver her response. Each of the presenters will be given a few minutes to respond and engage in dialogue, and we'll conclude with a few minutes of audience Q&A. We plan to wrap up by 6.55, and I invite you to join us downstairs for light food and refreshments afterward. Now, by way of introduction, I'd like to provide some background on today's event. The Stendhal Symposium honors the legacy and memory of Christer Stendhal, the Swedish theologian and scholar of the New Testament who taught at HDS from 1954 to 1989. Christer served as the dean of HDS from 1968 to 79, it, and eventually served as the first chaplain at HDS after just a brief stint to attend to some duties as the Bishop of Stockholm. As Dean, Christer worked to broaden the curriculum and student body to include a wider range of religious backgrounds, 
pushed for the ordination of women in the church, and in his scholarship critiqued anti-Semitism commonly found in readings of the New Testament. Dean Stendhal's wife and partner, Britta Stendhal, was a translator and author with a background in theology, publishing backgrounds on Kierkegaard and the Swedish novelist, Frederica Bremer. Like Christer, Britta was an active member of the HDS community. Together, they both led a number of initiatives to promote interreligious dialogue at Harvard and abroad. Dean Stendhal passed away in 2008. At around the same time, an ongoing student initiative that sought a public forum for student scholarship culminated in the formation of this symposium named in honor of Dean Stendhal. We also remember Britta Stendhal who passed in 2016 and was a faithful attendee of this event. In imagining a theme for this year's symposium, the HDSSA and I wanted to take seriously the legacy of Stendhal's interreligious service, foregrounding the lived political stakes of scholarship that engages difference, especially within a university that is materially and conceptually invested and implicated in the prison industrial complex, the settler colonial occupation of Palestine, land grabs in Brazil, and countless other extractive and violent industries, all atop stolen land, it is necessary for us to ask, for whom is this work that we as scholars produce? What is its end? And what are its stakes? In light of all this and drawing upon Stendhal's legacy, how do we do the difficult work of engaging religious difference authentically, lest pluralism be a hollow cover for a hollow representational politics? And so the theme of this year's symposium is conversations across religious boundaries, solidarity, resistance, and liberation in and through religious difference. We invited students to submit papers related to the politics of interreligious dialogue, difference, and comparison amongst believers and non-believers alike. After a thorough and anonymized review process, we were left with four outstanding papers. The presentations you'll hear today are rich and challenging invitations to think through interreligious practice, critique, and identity formation. They reflect a wide range of analytical modes, historical and contemporary, textual and lived, scholarly and personal. I hope you might sit with us and think through these texts as the reviewers did and as their authors have graciously invited us to. Despite all the frantic peer reviewing that happens in the minutes or hours before our papers are due, I think it's rare that we have the space or time to truly engage with our peers' ideas in full. I hope that these next few minutes offer us the chance to do so. And now for our first presentation, which will be delivered by Maya Pace. Maya is a first year MTS student exploring questions of land, faith, climate, and community through a lens of rigorous love and healing. She comes to the Divinity School after working for several years as the founding chief program officer of Lead for America, an organization that supports community revitalization by training and placing young people back in their hometowns. Maya has a background in facilitation and conflict resolution. She seeks to bring her love of creating transformative experiences to her studies and her work. To present the paper, Placemaking as a Spiritual Practice, I ask that you all join me in welcoming Maya to the podium. Hi, y'all. It's so good to be here with you, and what an honor to share the stage with my fellow presenters. Thank you for the invitation to be here and for your witness. Prelude 
Welcome and Origins. I began writing the paper I'll be presenting on early last winter, just days after 30 tornadoes struck the Midwest of the United States. The death toll was 90. I wrote this paper a year after the worst fire season in California state history, the state that I'm from. I wrote this paper amidst a global pandemic, amidst multiple wars, amidst a season of increasing social isolation and despair, amidst deeply divisive polarization, in a country where millions of people will go hungry tonight and where we still have not reckoned with a history and present of racial injustice and genocide. I also wrote this paper sitting in a cafe where I've heard high schoolers over pizza discussing how they might intervene in various forms of injustice. Down the block from a parking garage where I saw a neighbor come and lay a blanket and some hot food next to a man sitting in the cold. I wrote this paper bolstered by a community of people who circled around a fire in freezing weather, discussed how we can better tend to earth. The inspiration for this paper, which as Bilal mentioned, is entitled Placemaking as a Spiritual Practice, emerged out of my own desperation. As we face this time, a time in which goodness is not at all clear and the need to turn towards each other is increasingly more challenging, I find myself craving a faith practice that roots me deeply while orienting me towards the discipline of building a more loving world. I long for a community rooted in faith, and I define faith broadly, faith in God, nature, friendship, love, logic, whatever it is that calls to you, with whom I can make meaning and be called to action. I've been struggling to find a spiritual practice that feels rich, that contains the mystery and wonder of the divine, while still speaking to my agnostic self. In parallel, my concern and at times despair around climate change has been growing in intensity, compounded by the realities I shared above and a real concern that our inability to talk to one another across lines of difference, to learn to love and work alongside of one another will impact the lives of our descendants. I have been wondering how and to whom I pray. These aches have led me to two orienting questions. One, what is the faith framework around which I hope to orient my life that will guide me towards a robust practice of love for self, others, land, and God? And two, how might I build a community around this framework so that we can learn, deepen, and act together? As I read theologians, indigenous scholars, ecologists, and climate scientists searching for guidance, I noticed a thread emerge across their writing, place. Across faith traditions, the way we tend to the places we inhabit, body, land, community, world, forms us, our actions, and our relationship to the future. Land is a mediating, and one could say formative force. Place, land, and the impact of climate, or some might use the language God, on land, is something that scientists and people of faith and those who hold both identities can make sense of together. I find it notable that in this time of disembodiment, the theme that emerged across traditions is the very embodied practice of placemaking. Placemaking offers a common language and practice to shape us and critically root ourselves and our future and the places that we inhabit. We can discuss it scientifically, theologically, ecologically, or relationally. So I offer this framework of placemaking as a spiritual practice um, as a preliminary exploration into my own uh, version of this concept. And this work reads data-backed research about place, case studies of communities that explicitly use placemaking as a tool for spiritual formation, personal reflection and memoir, 
the words of theologians, religious leaders, scientists, and scholars to form this framework of spiritual placemaking. In writing this paper and kind of crafting this framework, I chose to root it in the traditions that I find in my own lineage. As a descendant of Irish Catholics, Christians, doctors, and agnostics, I pay particular attention to Catholic, Christian, and Celtic spiritual teachings, science, and non-religious spiritual formation work. Though not in my lineage, I also weave the voices of people indigenous to North America as their words and work have informed my conception of place and land. In the spirit of James Joyce's reminder that we find the universal through the particular, I use language that is familiar to me and my situated context to define my framework. Language like farm, hearth, open space. But I invite you all to translate this framework to the place-based words that make sense to you. For some, the marker of farm might literally be a farm. For others, it might be a community garden, a square in the city, a house plant, or even the act of running your hands through warm water as you wash the dishes. These are all places of tending. So what is placemaking as a spiritual practice? In this framework, I explore four distinct places as sites of spiritual formation. Each place is bolstered by specific placemaking practices that help articulate what placemaking in that space looks like. I define placemaking as building relationship with or grounding in a given place. These places are one, the open space, two, the farm, three, the table, four, the hearth, and because I like to break my own rules, there's a fifth add-on, which is called the return. <laughs> Through this framework, I ask, how do we attend to relationships with each of these places? What happens when we make visible the very embodied nature of each of these relationships? How might the practice of placemaking at each of these sites teach me to better love self, community, land, and God? This work is deeply informed by the call for many indigenous peoples that we must heal our relationship to land if we are also to heal the acts of genocide and colonial violence my ancestors enacted to build a more vibrant future. The wounds of this past are continuously felt and reenacted today. My hope is that this practice of placemaking, which I find in both my own lineage and others, might offer a framework to return to in service of restoring my relationship to place, people, and land. So I'll now depart slightly from the actual paper that I wrote and submitted for this presentation. Um, rather than walking you through the scholarly description of each of the places um, in this framework of spiritual placemaking, which you can read about in the paper itself if you really are <laughs> that interested, <laughs> um, I'd love to invite us all into an embodied practice of placemaking um, that's been meaningful to me, which is prayer and meditation. So as part of my process for drafting this framework, I also considered what it would mean to build an accompanying sacred text with words that have deeply informed my conception of placemaking and to write my own blessings of grounding and solace. As I move through very brief descriptions of the four places in this framework, I'll also offer you a snippet of my sacred text and a blessing. As you listen, I invite you to close your eyes, lower your eyes, um, notice your body, whatever feels comfortable to you. I invite you to consider what these four places mean to you, what words you might add to this curated sacred text, what your blessings might sound like, how you might articulate this need to build a rigorous relationship with the land and each other, what these sights and sound, sounds offer you. This work takes all of us. First stop, the open space. The open space is an invitation to solitude, to go outside, to soak in and experience land and place. In bearing witness to self and land, we build relationship with God. 
The practice of seeking open space teaches us to love ourselves. Placemaking in the open space is an invitation to find solitude. There is a reason the desert fathers and mothers sent themselves to the desert to show their love to God. Aloneness is a particular sort of shock to the body. Solitude forces us to confront ourselves and asks us to reckon with how we relate to the world. Quote, we have forgotten that we ourselves are dust of the earth. Our very bodies are made up of her elements. We breathe her air and we receive life and refreshment from her waters. Pope Francis, Laudato Si. A blessing for the open space. As we tread upon earth, may we recall this one truth, that we are of and will return to the soil, to God, to light. May this wild recognition make our knees quake with the beauty of seeing self in soil. May we reach out, touch the ground, feel hand on skin. May we tend, may we caress. Second stop, the farm. The farm invites us to put our hands in the soil, to build active relationships with the creatures and non-living things around us, to understand ourselves as stewards, to love the land. Placemaking at the farm is about tending. When we tend the land, we are changed by it. When we plant our hands in the soil, we are called to understand something potent about our interconnectedness. Quote, the land loves us back. She loves us with beans and tomatoes, with roasting ears and blackberries and bird songs, by a shower of gifts and a heavy rain of lessons. She provides for us and teaches us to provide for others. That's what good mothers do. Robin Wall Kimmerer, Braiding Sweetgrass. A blessing for the farm. Thank you for the abundant, full love of the land. In receiving this gift, we are reminded of the interconnectedness of all life. We heal from our wounds. We rejoice in the bounty. We remember and redistribute to those who are hungry. We practice restraint, taking only what is needed. We remember that we exist in mutual stewardship. Land, life, human, place. We give thanks. Third stop, the table. The table teaches us about invitation, about our interconnectedness, about resilience, listening, and grace. Placemaking around a table teaches us about selfless love of neighbor. Placemaking around the table is about invitation. My dinner table growing up was often a place of conviviality and learning. My dad, a doctor who serves people overlooked by the medical establishment, would return home from his day to share about patients he tended to. Friends would gather around and ask questions of my mom, a former sex ed teacher turned nonprofit executive. Our table was lively. We laughed, asked, cried, and celebrated together. Our kitchen table taught me about the power of invitation and the role that breaking bread can play in forging friendship that lasts a lifetime. Now that I have a table of my own, the act of gathering has become a part of my placemaking practice and continues to fuel and challenge me. Quote, out of a great need, we are all holding hands and climbing. Not loving is a letting go. Listen, the terrain around here is far too dangerous for that. Hafez, the gift. A blessing for the table. In the darkness, the scramble, the slip and scrape, may we remember the feel of soft skin and reach out just enough to grab hold. May we stay in love with every single soul, even the ones that stumble, even the ones that yank, 
even the ones that say, carry on, I know, I know, but we must carry on. The stakes are far too high to render anyone irredeemable. Shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand, may we march on unsteadily, unsteadily at times into our together future. May we remember that to love is the only option. Fourth stop, the hearth. Placemaking at the hearth is about prayer. The hearth, or as some might know it, the church, the sacred place, the candle, is the place of devotion. The hearth invites contemplation, surrender. Just as placemaking invites exploration, so does it invite reflection. We return to the hearth to warm, to find hope, to connect with divine light. Quote, Quiet friend who has come so far, feel how your breathing makes more space around you. Let this darkness be a bell tower and you a bell. As you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. Move back and forth into the change. What's it like, such intensity of pain? If the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. In this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses, the meaning discovered there. And if the world has ceased to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow. To the rushing water speak, I am. Rainer Maria Rilke, Sonnets to Orpheus too. A blessing for the hearth. When we are brought to our knees in pain, when we feel invisible, when we believe we cannot go on, we know this will come, it's already here. May we heave in and out, breathe deeply, cry out in our beingness. May we hear God respond in a whisper, reminding us, you are, you are, you are. Final stop, the return. Placemaking, if nothing else, is an intentional act. I will confess I have an agenda. My hope is that the notion of placemaking as a spiritual practice can renew our commitment to stewarding this earth well. Understanding ourselves to be in relationship to the places we live activates our ability and need to rigorously commit to restoring right relationship with one another and the land. We must understand our entanglement to place as fourfold, body, community, land, the divine. By building loving relationship with each of these sites, by placemaking in these four locations, we tend to ourselves and our collective future and offer pockets of healing amidst our current disconnection and exploitation. Placemaking is intentional work. It is cyclical work. May we build home wherever we are with care and attention to future generations. So let us be brought to our knees with the stunning glory of all that surrounds us. Let us understand that we have no other choice but to walk in tenderness and love that none of us are irredeemable. Let us remember that we belong to each other. Thank you, Maya, for that offering. <clears throat> Our next presenter is Tianyi Yuan. Tianyi is a second year MDiv student from mainland China. His main academic interest is the Church of the East in 8th century China. At HDS, Tianyi also studies ancient languages such as Greek, Syriac, Latin, and classical Chinese. And he takes various courses on the history of Christianity and Chinese religiosity. 
Recently, he's been working on a project that traces Zoroastrianism in Chinese popular religion. To present from Persian Sutra to Dachin Luminous Religion, please join me in welcoming Tianyi. Uh, all right, my judges, perhaps I should remove this so you can see my original face. So uh, greetings, friends and uh, professors. Uh, in this presentation, I would request you to challenge me about this idea. Name is a platform for self-identity. The subject of my paper is the Syriac Church of the East in 8th century China, which people often call Da Qin Jingjiao, or simply Jingjiao, or the luminous religion in academia. However, prior to its current name, Da Qin Jingjiao was named as Persian Sutra religion, or even Persian barbarian religion by the Chinese during the Tang Dynasty. Jingjiao Christians entered China via the Silk Road. Along with many other Central Asia religions, for example, Manichaeism, Zoroastrianism, and Mahayana Buddhism. In my original term paper for Dr. Barakatulo Ashrov on Syriac Christian monasticism between Mesopotamia and China, I translated and analyzed several passages from the worldly renowned Jingjiao Monument, whose full title is it's a long name. The monument commemorating the propagation of Da Qin luminous religion in Middle Kingdom in Chinese, Da Qin Jingjiao, Liu Xing Zhongguo Bei. For this conference, I divide my presentation into two parts. In the first part, I will briefly go through the argument of my original paper. We shall read several passages from the empirically, empirically warranted yet image Jingjiao monument together in comparison with several Chinese texts, also by referencing their situation in the 8th century Chinese milieu, I will indicate why and how the change of name creates space, identity, cultural dialogue, and uh, resistance. In the second part, we can do some meaning-making for the sake of this conference on resistance and uh, cultural dialogue. We shall, we shall contemplate how may, be, how, how may we as students and scholars in the 21st century Cambridge learn from this change of name that happened in 8th century China. Part one, as I have suggested in the title of my presentation, from Persia Sutra religion to Dachin luminous religion, Eastern Syriac Christian self-initiated name change in the 8th century China has two interrelated uh, components. A, there is a change in their geographical destination from, from Persia or Bosa to from Dachin. B, there is a theological or cosmological change from being named by the Chinese as the Sutra religion to being named by themselves as the luminous religion or Jingjiao. The change from Persia to Sutra is a process of creating space within Chinese geographical legend the change from sutra to, uh, to luminousness, or jing, is an endeavor of making room for self-identity within the metaphysical realm of Chinese cosmology. But first of all, we have to know that in the 8th century Chinese emperor, there is a geographical legend of a civilized mighty country in the far barbaric west. Uh, 
which is called Da Qin. In contrast, Persia or Bursa, or if you will, the Sasanian, Sasanian Empire was a familiar country. As the Chinese in the 7th and 8th centuries believe, Persia was rich, mystical, yet occupied by greedy merchants and barbaric magicians, and was falling apart due to the Arabic conquest. The geographical imagination of Da Qin are rooted in early Chinese semi-legendary geographical accounts that were written between 100 BCE and 500 CE. For example, the book of Later Han, which was written in 440 CE, says, the people of this country are tall and honest. Hence, they resemble the people of Middle Kingdom, namely China, and that is why their kingdom is called Da Qin. So the main reason for, for why the 8th century Chinese called the only civilized country in the Anno or Barbaric West, Da Qin or the Great Qin, was because it resembles China in terms of, civiliz in terms of its civilization and the mightiness. But the Chinese character Qin is, is also an obsolete name for the first Chinese imperial dynasty founded by Qin Shi Huangdi, as we learned from high school global history. To wit, uh, the, the fact that the Chinese call a civilized realm of the far mystical West Da Qin or the Great Qin is almost like some arrogant Renaissance Italian gentlemen under the house of Medici call somewhere in the far west the Great Roman Empire. Therefore, for Jingjiao Christians who lived in the Tang Emperor, adopting Da Qin as their name would designate a sort of cultural equality political confidence, and even kingship with the Chinese imperial elite. Furthermore, by offering an explanation of Da Qin's mightiness and civilization, which the Chinese know through their legend, and if you will, Occidentalist, Occidentalist imagination, Jingjiao Christians gave their Christian revelatory meaning of Da Qin. The Jingjiao Monument says, within the country of Da Qin, no laws but the luminous law are carried out. No lords but the virtuous are set up. Da Qin's territory is widespread. Its culture and its affairs are glorious and enlightened. The mightiness of the legendary Da Qin came into reality on account of that Jingjiao Christian's luminous teaching from the Christian Messiah was propagated and popular there. Furthermore, the sage or the Holy One or the Messiah was born in Da Qin or the Chinese legendary country. The monument continues to say, the maid or perhaps Virgin Mary in the chamber gave birth to the Holy One in the country of Da Qin. A luminous star told the good news as the propitious portent. The Persians saw its glory and came to Da Qin to present the tribute. Jingjiao Christians associate their birth narrative of the Messiah or Christ with the Chinese geographical legend of the Far West. Hence, Da Qin became the mystical place in the Far West where the luminous Messiah was born. In this way, Jingjiao Christians retold the Chinese geographical legend to the Chinese to craft their own identity.
In addition, the fundamental teaching of Jingjiao, namely luminousness or Jing, as Jingjiao Christians posit, is the key to the Chinese cosmological first principle, or Dao, or Wei. Perhaps the most crucial line from the Jingjiao monument says, the real and eternal Dao, or Wei, is mysterious and difficult to name, yet it functions and affects as, the, as are illustriously manifested in the world. Hence, we have to far-fetchedly name our teaching the luminous religion, namely Jingjiao. Jingjiao Christians adopt Chinese cosmological and mystical vocabularies, expressions, elements such as Tao and uh, the Taoist agnostic cosmological functions, and transform them with their Christian, monotheist, transcendent, and revelatory dogma. This line, which I just quoted from the Jingjiao monument, explicitly echoes Dao De Jing uh, 25. There was something from, formed from the procreational chaos or mixture before the creation of heaven and earth. It is silent and formless. It always stands alone and never sees uncrossing. You could consider it as the source or mother of all things. I don't know what it's called, but I forced, if I forced to name it, I would say Dao. If forced to describe it, I would say Great. By identifying revelatory luminousness with, given directly from the Messiah with the Chinese cosmological and agonistic Dao of the way, Jingjiao Christians add their own Christian monotheist understanding of the way of everything. They maneuver or create space within the unknown yet flexible realm of Chinese cosmo cosmology and mythology. Then they retell the Chinese cosmological and the mythological narrative to the Chinese imperial elites, and hence being viewed as culturally equal. Now, why the change of name is a way of existence? The 8th century Chinese elite, as complacent as almost all the rulers of emperors in the past, think of themselves as a civilized center of the universe. Although Chinese during the Tang Dynasty was, was a cosmo cosmopolitan emperor, thanks to the flourishing of the Silk Road. The Tang elites view all the people from elsewhere as barbarians, or Huren in Chinese, especially those from Central Asia or, or Persia. Within the, this context of Chinese exceptionalism, Jingjiao Christians man, maneuvered within the non-strictly defined Chinese mythological and, and metaphysical realm to reconstruct themselves as equal to their Chinese host in terms of their geographical origin from the civilized Daqin and their revelatory teachings that is even more fundamental than the Chinese Tao. Dr. Karen King always asks us to think about these questions. Who gets to say? Or who gets the voice to define? In the Tang Chinese milieu, Jingjiao Christians almost had no choice to influence Chinese policies, foreign policy, and the Chinese attitude toward foreigners or barbarians. Nevertheless, these Jingjiao Christians want themselves an opportunity to make their voice through their own endeavors to change their name. They adopt Chinese geographical legend and spiritual symbols to recraft a legendary Chinese kingdom as their own origin, whose flourishing and civilization was caused by the luminous teaching of Christianity. 
And this luminous teaching of Christianity is also the original face of Taoist Tao. Therefore, to conclude this part, on the surface, we can say that these Eastern Syriac Christians adopt the Chinese elite language and a discourse to recraft their self-identity. However, if we think harder, we can see that Eastern Syriac Christians change the meaning of Chinese mystical and cosmological terms to rename themselves. Part two. Now, let's do some meaning-making. This is how HDS teaches us some meaning-making. Uh, today, we often use the terms such as uh, the privileged and uh, the marginalized. If I, if I may give a slightly cynical reading, these Jingjiao Christians maneuvered to privilege themselves, or to use Dr. Ashrov's language, these Jingjiao Christians endeavored to become Chinese elites themselves by adopting and re-articulating re the Chinese elite languages with their own Christian revelatory meaning. At HDS, we are often encouraged to be critical of labels, tags, and names. For example, Dr. King wrote the book, What is Gnosticism? However, I also find that people often consolidate their identities by remaking or re proclaiming their name and labels against oppression. I gave you an example from last month. Why is calling Kyiv, K-Y-I-V, rather than Kyiv as K-I-E-V, or vice versa, so meaningful for different peoples or individuals? Likewise, it means a lot for Syriac Christians in China to change their na the name of their origin from Persia to Daqin. In addition, many of us often express a keen suspicion of elitist language and uh, philosophy, which does have its which does have its value. At HDS, we often hear about the process of making the marginalized voice heard. We always encourage resistance against cultural chauvinism, such as systematic racism. However, my research on Syriac Christianity in China often urges me to think about whether it is possible for, for an otherized religion to articulate itself intellectually and confidently to the rest of the society, or how to make space tenaciously by oneself within a cultural system. As a Chinese myself, this concern is often intuitively recognized. By the way, Bello, do I still have more time? Okay, sure. I, if, as long as I'm still alive, I'm going to keep making meaning. <laughs> yes. So we actually see the examples of names changed through in religious identity around us in April two, 2022, in short is how. You may be aware of the names of the some of the religious community and the groups at HDS. I myself am on the board of the leaders of HDS Catholic and Friends as institutional religious practitioner at HDS. Yeah, at HDS, in order to represent ourselves as a part of HDS communities. First, we add HDS in front of our religion, and then we adopt the HDS language of diversity and inclusion. Hence, we are called HDS, Catholic, and Friends. And we share our Catholic identity and spirituality at HDS. Imagine what could happen if I force my, oh, my colleagues are here. If I, if I force my colleagues uh, to change, uh, to call ourselves a Roman Papist, or Vatican counter-reformationist. The group perhaps would be considered as the barbarian at HDS and never be a part of the HDS community. 
Many of us also adopt the HDS philosophy to modify our name, to find our space at HDS. By renaming ourselves according to HDS discourse, we are also changing HDS philosophy, just as Jingjiao Christians changed Chinese cosmology and uh, mythology. As Jingjiao Christians in the 8th century, we also change our name to explore and find our identities. Perhaps we can explore this message further, and I would invite your help. Thank you, friends. Thank you, Tianyu. <clears throat> Our next presenter is Azani Creeks. Azani is a second year MTS student with a focus in African and African American religious studies. Drawing on previous training as a historian, her work explores the role of black spirituality in social movements <clears throat> and identity formation for black people in America or in the Americas through ethnographic work and literary analysis. In her personal and academic work, she is particularly committed to exploring how spirituality manifests in prisons and in the prison abolition movement. To present abolition as a spiritual discipline, please join me in welcoming Azani Creeks. Hi. <laughs> Good evening. I feel like my grandfather, he's a pastor. <laughs> um, Okay, um, thank you all for being here. Um, so the paper that I submitted for this symposium is a slightly shorter version of my thesis titled Abolition as a Spiritual Discipline. Um, and I'll kind of explain what the paper was about by explaining how I came to the topic. Um, so I would consider myself a student of abolition, meaning that I've been learning about um, and studying uh, abolition both individually and in community for a few years now as a personal and political commitment. Um, and when I say abolition, I am talking somewhat specifically about prison abolition, um, which was kind of my first introduction into the contemporary abolition movement. But I would argue, as plenty others have said before me, that abolition is about much more than one institution or type of institution alone. Um, that getting rid of prisons is not the end goal of abolition, um, but that getting rid of the logics that allow for the prison to exist is the goal, um, which would require a complete overhaul of society. Um, but of course, many contemporary abolitionists see today's movement for abolition as an extension of the next part in um, the movement to abolish slavery. Um, that emancipation did not lead to freedom, um, and therefore the fight for abolition continues. That is the position of my paper. Um, so in learning about abolition, I've tried to read a lot from incarcerated abolitionists as the people who are most directly experiencing the harsh effects of the carceral system. Um, and in my reading, I kept noticing that writers would talk about spirit um, in a way that felt somewhat separate from any particular theology. Um, and of course, abolitionists throughout the centuries have used theology to justify or support their call for abolition, but I was noticing something different. Um, and to give an example, um, there's an annual collection of um, biographies that's published by political prisoners um, titled Can't Jail the Spirit. Um, and so what they mean by that is that although their bodies may be physically restricted, their spirit cannot be contained. Um, so I was really intrigued by this concept of spirit um, and wanted to explore how incarcerated people went about protecting and cultivating their spirit in ways that allowed them to continue to fight for freedom. Um, in other words, how do incarcerated people create freedom for their spirits? 
Um, so in reading for the thesis, one of the texts that I read was Garrett Felber's Those Who Know Don't Say, which uses the framework of a dialectics of discipline to describe the relationship between state discipline and the discipline within the nation of Islam. Um, and so he writes that um, the disciplines show up both as a means of social control and coerciveness by the state and as the individual and collective behavior necessary to resist and defeat it. Um, so there's the state discipline and there's the discipline of resistance. Um, and of course, within his framework, he's talking about the nation of Islam and their interactions with the carceral state. Um, and the nation of Islam is somewhat well known for their discipline, both ideologically in terms of holding very specific views and practically in terms of dress, movement, activities. Um, and Felber doesn't talk much about the theological or spiritual dimensions of that discipline. He really talks about kind of what what they do out of that. Um, but that's that kind of spiritual dimension is exactly where my interest lies. Um, and I think it's one of the main things that people talked about when they talked about the Nation of Islam. Was the group's discipline actually spiritually motivated or was it just um, spirituality as a front for what was actually a political motivation? Um, and my understanding of both the Nation of Islam and abolition is that they are, in fact, spiritually motivated um, and that we should not ignore these motivations in favor of a purely social or political analysis. Um, so my thesis builds on Felber's very helpful concept of the dialectics of discipline and considers a dialectics of spiritual discipline that happens between the state and abolitionists. Um, so William Mahoney writes that spiritual discipline, quote, establishes the orientation and outlines the procedures that seekers should follow in order to make real the transformation for which they hope. Um, so the keywords there being orientation, procedures, and transformation. Um, so in spiritual discipline, um, there is this kind of orientation. And for the state discipline, that orientation um, is um, what bell hooks would describe as having like the twin gods of money and power. Um, and so you're oriented um, to attain money and power in the ways that you can um, in a capitalist way. And it's very focused on transforming the life of an individual. Um, abolitionist discipline, on the other hand, is oriented toward freedom as distinct from emancipation. Um, and I'm thinking here with Joy James's concept and distinction between emancipation and freedom where she says, Emancipation is given by the dominant, it being a legal, contractual, or social agreement. Freedom is taken and created. Freedom is an ontological status. Only the individual or collective, and perhaps a god, can create freedom. Um, and so I'm thinking about the ways that state discipline is focused on the individual, is focused on money and power, and the way that abolitionist discipline is focused on freedom for all. Um, and in doing this, my sources for this thesis were primarily um, the writings of incarcerated abolitionists um, and kind of my, my guiding quote and thought for this paper was from Black Panther Sophia Bukhari, who spent eight years in prison and who wrote, we must exercise, as in exorcism, those characteristics of ourselves and traits of the oppressor nation in order to carry out that most important revolution, the internal revolution. This is the revolution that creates a new being capable of taking us to freedom and liberation. Um, and because of the expansiveness of the prison industrial complex and um, there's so much prison writing out there, I was like, I have to narrow this down somehow. Um, and so I explored how the dialectics of this discipline unfolded in New York State, um, starting with kind of the first reformatories in the 18th century and moving throughout the present day. 
<clears throat> and I picked New York um, for a lot of different reasons, but one of the main reasons is because um, New York is where um, the kind of modern day model for the prison that we have was perfected. Um, and so in 1816, Auburn Prison opened um, and the slogan of Auburn Prison was industry, obedience, and silence. Um, and kind of, I explore kind of how those are the, the cornerstones and the way that the state spiritual discipline is practiced. Um, so industry being a focus on labor, a focus on being productive for the state. Um, there's obedience, which means that you follow the rules um, that the state gives you in order to carry out order um, in the way that they deem is correct. Um, and also silence, so about isolating people not only from their communities at large, but um, in Auburn, incarcerated people were not able to talk to each other. Um, they were separated, and so not only isolating them from their communities, but from each other, building any kind of community within the prison. Um, and so that's kind of the state side of the discipline. Um, but even in that, obviously, incarcerated people organized they weren't able to talk to each other, but you organized a labor strike. How did you do that? Um, and yeah, I just found all these examples of these amazing ways that incarcerated people resisted and um, were able to protect and grow and cultivate their spirits. Um, and so thinking of industry, si industry, obedience, and silence as kind of the, the main tools of the state discipline, I. Um, yeah, I went through all of the writings that I had and thought about what the what the aspects of were of an abolitionist discipline. Um, and so I have kind of like a list of cornerstones, elements um, that I found within that. I don't mean the list to be exhaustive in any way. Um, and I would love to discuss what other things should be included, what things should be taken out. Um, yeah, and just like talk more about this. I think that there's been um, a lot of discussion and analysis about abolition on a systemic level, um, on a political level, um, and I'm really, really interested in the moral and spiritual aspects of it. So I will go through the cornerstones and elements briefly um, and look forward to more discussion after. Um, so the first one is hope. Um, and I, I want to be clear that I think that um, hope is within a spiritual discipline, regardless of what the discipline is. And that was in the, um, in the definition given by William Mahoney that um, people commit to a spiritual discipline because they're hoping for some kind of transformation, right? Um, and the hope in the abolitionist um, discipline is that society would be transformed um, in a way that allows for full freedom for everyone. Um, the next one is imagination. Um, and there's a quote that says, let us begin working at the edges of what is possible. Um, so thinking about like what we can do, and of course this makes sense um, coming out of the prison context where people are not allowed to talk to each other, to engage with each other, to be free. What do they use? Their imagination to think about how things could be different. Um, the third one is community. Um, and so kind of resisting that isolation, resisting the silence um, that the state imposes. Um, talking to and exchanging ideas with people in community, not thinking about um, our lives and our, um, our kind of destinies as separate from one another, right? As thinking of a collective kind of um, movement that we have throughout our lives. 
Um, the fourth is um, duty. Um, and it's something that came up a lot and of course is um, kind of memorialized through Asada Shakur's, um, it is our duty to win, it is our duty um, it is our duty to fight for our freedom, it is our duty to win. Um, and thinking about, kind of connected with community, how duty is to one another. There is an interdependence that we have and that one person's freedom is necessarily tied up with another person's freedom and that we do have duty to other people in our community. Um, the fifth is or solidarity through sacrifice. Um, and I saw so many examples in my readings of one person being mistreated and everyone going on a hunger strike to protest this one person's mistreatment, right? And so there's a way that you show solidarity by giving something up, that giving up a privilege, right? And if you can call prison food a privilege, um, but you know, giving up something that you need um, in order to really be in solidarity with others. Um, and um, one of the last ones, again, this list is not exhaustive, um, is education and thinking about all the ways that um, People teach each other things that are outside of the traditional institutions, freedom schools, um, gatherings within prisons. There's this one um, beautiful example from the 1970 riots in um, New York City jails and prisons where they like trashed and destroyed everything in the prison except for the library because the library was a sacred space of learning to gather, to teach one another. Um, so yeah, that's that's the list that I'm working with. Again, would love to talk more about other elements um, that are possible to think about in this spiritual discipline. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Azani. If you want to hear that again, thesis presentations are this week, I believe. So. <laughs> Um, our third and final student presenter is Alex Baskin. Fourth, fourth, <laughs> but final. <laughs> um, thanks, Alex. Alex is a third year MDiv student, rooted in a decade of Buddhist practice and his upbringing in an Orthodox Jewish community. He's working toward becoming a multi-faith hospital chaplain. His studies at HDS have focused on play and playfulness, spiritual care, collective justice, practical ethics, embodiment, relationality, materiality, dance, poetry, and critical theory. Please join me in welcoming Alex. Hello, 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 hello. Um, I wanted to start by saying that I submitted a paper to the Stendhal Symposium last year that didn't get accepted. So I just want to say for students in the room or on the Zoom room who are still going to be here next year that just want to like put a plug in for throwing your hat in the ring. Um, so in this presentation, I'm going to do three things. Uh, the first is I'm going to make a normative claim. So I'm going to kind of put forward the ethical aim of what I'm, what I'm up to. Um, the second is that I'm going to propose a reading methodology, um, so a kind of experimental reading approach that I call Buddhistly reading. Um, 
Microsoft Word doesn't really doesn't like the uh, the adverb that, that I invented there, but what do they know? Um, so in these first two things, the normative claim and the reading methodology are going to be in service of the third thing, which is closely reading a passage from the Talmud. Um, and for that, I'm going to read a read an excerpt from this paper. So the normative claim. Uh, my claim is that we can lead flourishing lives and treat one another well when we somatically attune to the actual lived experience of being a human body. Um, we should regard the body as a central locus of ethical significance, a site from which we um, can expect to find meaning and value. So um, what I'm saying is that it's, the reason that I'm saying this is that it's with and through the body that we encounter others and that we, that we know ourselves and it's with and through the body that we harm others and that we harm ourselves. Um, in the paper, I go into the, the philosophical ancestors that kind of inspire this, and um, also the religious studies context, um, the, the corporeal turn in religion uh, that I don't have time for right now, but we could talk more about it in the Q&A if you're interested. Um, so that's the kind of ethical aim, which is really center, um, pay attention to the body, that the body really matters. So the methodology, the reading methodology, um, basically instead of looking at this topic, the body, and asking, a, you know, what does this religion say about it? What does that religion say about it? Um, instead, what I'm trying to do is use one religious tradition as a lens to look at another. Um, so this doesn't prove that one tradition is authoritative or truer or better in any way, just that using one kind of lens um, as a lens for another tradition can itself be an illuminating practice. Um, I think that this is illuminating for, um, in this case, Buddhists, for Jews, and also for non-Buddhists and for non-Jews, anyone who wants to learn from and not just about these traditions. Um, so I'm especially inspired by this, um, this Buddhist philosopher, uh, He's an American academic named David Loy. He wrote this book called A Buddhist History of the West. Um, and importantly, it's not a history of Buddhism in the West. It's not about how Buddhism is popular in the United States or why. Um, it's a history of the West from a Buddhist perspective. So he's looking at um, kind of developments in Western history from the Greeks and the Romans to medieval Europe to modern Europe um, and asking if some of the things that um, Buddhist texts say are true, if some of the things that the Buddha taught are true, why did history unfold the way it did? Why did empire and commerce and media um, come to occupy the roles that they have? Uh, so, so for Loy, he's especially looking at what he identifies as, um, what he sees as key teachings of, of Buddhism. He focuses especially on the three characteristics of existence that the Buddha taught, and these are that all things are impermanent, that suffering is always a part of life, um, and that what we take to be the self is not a solid or stable thing. He kind of puts these together and he calls, um, he calls them the sense of lack, that we fear as humans that we're not fully real, and so we anxiously try to ground this ungroundable self, and that this kind of accounts for a lot of the unfoldings of, of Western history. Um, so he, it's a little bit like what some Marxist historians do, which is like taking the theory to be true, looking at other um, periods in history and wondering why those things happened if, you know, on, on that kind of account. Uh, so 
So I, I, use, I, I use Loy for this idea to kind of look at non-Buddhist things Buddhistly. Um, but there are some problems with Loy. He treats Buddhism, um, he's a positivist, basically. He treats Buddhism as this kind of independently existing thing. He essentializes it. He says, like, literally, this is the essential teaching of it. He doesn't really pay attention to the lived religious practices of Buddhists um, in all their diversity and heterogeneity. Uh, what he does is actually Orientalist. Um, so it's problematic. It's, it would not be sufficient on its own. Um, it, so I add to, I, I kind of augment his perspective with the work of an ethnographer um, whose name is Elizabeth Harris, and she interviewed contemporary Theravada Buddhists in Sri Lanka about their interpretations of embodiment in their religious practice. Um, anthropology is, is multivocal. It brings in different, different people's voices, so it's, it mitigates some of, some of the problems in Loy. Um, Harris proposes this, this threefold schematic. She says um, for the Theravada Buddhists that she interviewed, the body is a problem to be recognized. Um, it's a problem because it's tied up with craving. The body is a teacher to be learned from um, that through, through, med through meditation directed at the body, we can learn about the human condition. Um, and the body is transformed on the path to liberation. Um, and that's that the body is literally transformed through the process of nirvana. Um, and also that the relationship to the body changes um, from selfish fixation to compassionate goodwill. So, um, so that's the methodology. Um, one quick note about the object of study. So this is Buddhistly reading, and I'm going to be Buddhistly reading rabbinic texts. Um, the Talmud. The Talmud was written in the 4th and 5th century um, by diasporic Jews. Uh, I'm using especially Daniel Boyarin, um, Daniel Boyarin's uh, framework. He wrote this book called Carnal Israel, where he takes some anti-Semitic tropes and he flips them on their head. He um, takes the idea, something that Jews are sometimes accused of, which is being focused on the body. Um, like Augustine said that Jews are indisputably carnal. And he says that that's actually theologically accurate, um, at least as far as rabbinic Judaism and, and the period of the Talmud goes. Um, and he shows why this is actually a really interesting and compelling thing, uh, that for the, the rabbis who wrote the Talmud, the self is not an immortal soul, but the self is the body. Um, and that's why the Talmud spends a lot of time on, on circumcision and on menstruation and on, on embodied um, aspects of the human experience. So, um, so the approach is, is using loy for the the clever idea to read not explicitly Buddhist things Buddhistly, using Harris for a more fleshed out and nuanced idea of what Buddhistly is, um, and, and aiming at articulating an ethic of the body, um, and, and looking at, 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 at Talmudic texts from this, this Buddhist reading perspective. So, um, so yeah, now reading an excerpt. So this, um, the text that I'm going to read exemplifies Boyarin's thesis regarding the body as a focal point in rabbinic culture. As Boyarin's carnal Israel explores at length, the Talmuds are replete with sexual ethics guiding where, when, and how to copulate. Uh, I highlight a passage from um, tractate Barakot, Sechet Brachot, from the Babylonian Talmud, uh, that calls attention to the notion that there's much for a rabbinic Jew to learn about sex. So in this passage, there's a young rabbinical student named Kahana, and his teacher's name is Rav. And this is Boyarin's translation. 
Kahana entered and lay down beneath the bed of Rav. He heard that his teacher was talking and laughing and having sexual intercourse. He said, the mouth of Rav appears as if he has never tasted this dish. Rav said to him, Kahana, get out. This is not proper behavior. <laughs> Kahana said to him, it is Torah and I must learn it. So in this excerpt, the reader learns, along with Kahana, several striking lessons. Rav, one of the most authoritative figures of Talmudic culture, according to Bayarin, evidently does not, uh, so Rav evidently does not treat sex as revolting nor as a mere task of procreation. He appears to, he appears to enjoy pleasure and intimacy fully, perhaps engaging in foreplay. Maybe that's what talking and laughing is referring to. Uh, he does not repress his erotic desire. He appears as if he has never tasted this dish. Though the voyeurism itself is admonished, the story is nevertheless recorded by the text, which preserves Kahana's logic of curiosity. The text trusts that the reader can make sense of why a student might want to learn about sex by observing. Most striking is the concluding claim, it is Torah and I must learn it. This Talmudic passage follows immediately two stories with the same punchline, it is Torah and I must learn it, that both concern bathroom conduct, which way to face in the toilet, how to remove clothes, and which hand is used for cleaning. The bathroom anecdotes have a similar structure. A student spies on his teacher, learns how it's done, receives an admonishing, and then defends himself by appealing to his intention to learn. These stories suggest that sex and bathroom conduct are truly Torah, at least in the view of the students, and very likely in the view of the Talmudic editors. The root of the word Torah means to teach or be taught. These are things for which one receives instruction. Calling sex and defecation Torah also suggests that they are, in some sense, holy. Boyarin rightly argues that this passage and other Talmudic texts like it preserve the tension between opposing frameworks of sexual ethics. Boyarin refers to the discourse of control and the discourse of free intimacy. So the Kahana story preserves the towering rabbi, authoritative, pious, who is nevertheless ravenous in bed. That's the free intimacy side. But the story also preserves an implied discipline through surveillance as if reminding the reader to be careful because someone may be watching. That's the control side. The logic of surveillance is rendered sensible. Kahana is portrayed as naive but not pathological. And yet Fourierism is explicitly named as improper behavior, implying that meritable, marital intimacy should be honored as private. So um, Boyarin's subtle analysis clarifies that rabbinic culture does not reflect an anti-sex worldview nor a sex-positive one. It is a mistake to claim that the rabbis were enlightened on gender or sexuality. There are plenty of patronizingly misogynistic statements in the Talmuds, as Boyarin does not hesitate to remind us. Yet fascinatingly, texts like this treat sex as a fact of life, seemingly an expected component of a full life. Reading this text Buddhistly, I begin with the acknowledgement that the Buddhist tradition too is not a bastion of sex positivism. Yet, Buddhist perspectives also preserve the tensions of opposing discourses of sex. On the one hand, the Buddha was a celibate monk, and he certainly praised the path of celibacy. 
but his texts relay copious, harsh statements regarding sense desire. On the other hand, sexually active lay followers are framed as capable of reaching full awakening. Uh, it's just after they have done so, the expectation is that they would naturally stop craving sex and are thus encouraged to ordain in a monastic order. Reading Buddhistly with an eye towards ethical praxis, I find Loy useful when he suggests that attempting to fill our sense of lack through sex will never work. Treating the body as an object that can deliver salvation through pleasure is a sure road to frustration, if not violence. If craving is the cause of suffering, then we should be suspicious of sex that is rooted in such craving. Sex thought of as something that will solve all of our problems is dangerous. But consensual sex conceived of as joyful connection with another may not represent such craving. After all, the third of the five ethical precepts for lay Buddhists, which concerns sexuality, forbids sexual misconduct only. The precept does not discourage sex itself. A Buddhist reading of this Talmudic passage leads me to wonder, if sex can be Torah, perhaps sex can be Dharma, a term that can take many de definitions from reality to thing, and yes, also teaching. Recall that according to Harris's schematic, the body is a problem as we are often infatuated with it, but it is also a teacher because it can teach us about impermanence. The joy of sex, like all worldly pleasure, does not last. One must directly experience impermanence to learn from it. Consider that the Buddha is said to have fathered a child years before his awakening, suggesting that this life stage may have been a part of his developmental process. Harris's ethnographic research reveals further examples of the intertwining of lessons about impermanence with otherwise pleasant sense experiences. She discusses a common ritual in Sri Lankan Buddhist temples of offering flowers to an image of the Buddha while reciting a reflection on the inevitability of death. Devotees chant, even as these flowers do fade, so does my body come to destruction. The ritual is pleasant, not morbid. Flowers are fragrant and beautiful, yet it is framed as a reminder of the body's impermanence. But the reader, that's all of you, may be underwhelmed by the conclusion that the usefulness of sex lies in the lesson that sex is not that great and that we're all going to die. <laughs> Harris maintains that the body teaches not only impermanence, but also not self. This characteristic of existence is reframed by some, such as Thich Nhat Hanh, as interdependence. Contrary to our perception that we are isolated individuals, we are in fact co-arising phenomena, intelligible only in relation to others and to all things. The body in sexual intercourse is a teacher of interdependence. We learn that our joy is wrapped up in the pleasure of others, we learn about avoiding selfishness. We learn about generosity and patience. Perhaps suggesting that sex teaches caring seems a bit Pollyanna-ish. Certainly I'm not proposing that sex is always or even often like this, only that it can be. Sex can be holy. It can be Torah and Dharma. To me, this represents an ethic that is more useful than treating sex or the body as profane. Thank you.
Thank you, Alex. Please, let's give it up one more time for our four presenters. And now for our faculty respondent. Professor Myra Rivera is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Religion and Latinx Studies here at Harvard. She's also the president of the American Academy of Religion. Professor Rivera works at the intersections between continental philosophy of religion, literature, and theories of coloniality, race, and gender, with particular attention to Caribbean post-colonial thought. Her research explores the relationship between discursive and material dimensions in shaping human embodiment and socio-material ecologies. She is currently working on a project that explores the relationships between coloniality and climate change through Caribbean thought. And on a personal note, Professor Rivera is an amazing teacher and advisor whose rigorous instruction and guidance has been a cornerstone for me and many of my peers in our time at HDS. Please join me in welcoming Professor Myra Rivera. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pilar and the HDS Student Association for the invitation for organizing this amazing event. I had the pleasure of reading the full papers, um, so I'm responding to that. And I need to say that it was quite a challenging assignment they gave me, um, so kind of payback. Um, <laughs> oh, and, and so in my response, I, I just wanted to think with you um, and bring some of the stuff I, I think about and put them in conversation with, with all of you and hoping that, that it can steer some further conversation. So Maya offered us a beautiful meditation on placemaking and spiritual practice. This is, Maya explains, a response both to the distancing from place shaped by virtual technologies and the challenges of climate change. Climate change and the catastrophes it brings about put pressure on the illusion of human beings' independence from place. That myth of placeless people, Willie Jennings has argued, has roots in the colonial conquest, which displaced people from land, seized land, stripped people from their place, and allowed colonizers to imagine themselves and their religion as unencumbered by place. These processes have continued, and Jennings argues that we won't solve the problems of race until we reflect on the interconnected turnings of space and the formation of racial being as mirrored processes. We need to narrate not simply the alterations of bodies, but the alterations of place itself. Maya's paper suggests that part of mending that break between bodies and place 
is to approach placemaking as a spiritual practice. And as Azani argued in her presentation, spiritual practice entails discipline. I read this also as potentially contesting destructive forms of placemaking, like conquest and forced displacement, as well as abstractions from embodiment and the practices that produce climate change. And I wondered as I read how to account for the ways in which particular places mark the lives of particular peoples. I wonder how to link that spiritual practice to a sensibility to the plight of those who are forcibly displaced both by settler colonialism and now increasingly by climate change. Tiani's contribution approaches geographic place from a historical perspective in which a claim to place moves a Christian, uh, a Chinese Christian community to claim roots in a legendary place from which they define their identities but also transform the very meaning of the messianic birth. Disavowing identities that have been othered as barbarian to claim a revered Chinese origin, Da Qing. Place is then not the immediate environment, but a legendary place described in beautiful detail. Here the distance opens possibilities for belonging. This invites some comparison with how Christians have related to Jerusalem, claiming it as origin, erasing Judaism from its story of origins, trying to conquer it, and even trying to build a new Jerusalem all throughout the Americas. The relation to place of origin has been a source of contention, and as Tiani demonstrates also of creative reinterpretation. I wonder about the role of physical and mythical places in the practices of their Christianity. Was Daqing integrated into their mystical traditions as a place of imaginary pilgrimage, for instance, which people would imagine as a practice of spiritual formation? Was it associated metaphorically with other places? Alex's Buddhistly reading of rabbinic texts takes us back to the body. The paper invites us to see beyond received stereotypes of Buddhists as antibody and Judaism as carnal. Instead, the significance of body, bodily experience and even pleasure as sites of learning. Alex shows us how rabbinic teaching can be interpreted as demonstrating how the body can teach us our impermanence and the not-self in relation to others. And here I want to draw some connections. First with Maya's paper, who encouraged us to think seriously the spiritual practices of connecting bodies to land. 
and wonder if we could also see such practices through this lens, describing them as teaching us also about the impermanence of our bodies. It's environmentalists do remind us that the planet will outlive us. And perhaps, perhaps most importantly, to unlearn the contained and absolute self to instead see its interdependence. Yet I also wonder how to think about this framework when we factor in differences for racialized communities who are all too aware or of their bodies' precarity. And I'm thinking here about the US. The broad culture teaches us that somebody, some bodies are unlovely. And for those interpolated by those images, thinking of unloveliness, of the unloveliness of their body may be destructive. Contemplating death is also an imposed reality for racialized people. I am intrigued by your insightful reading of the possibilities of embodied practices for seeking broader forms of ethical transformation, not just as a way to interpret particular ways of understanding embodiment, but also as a way of intentionally transforming our sensibilities. Asani Creeks offers us a framework to think about abolition as a spiritual practice. It is a discipline, as Annie suggests, and is grounded in principles of hope, imagination, community, duty, solidarity, and education. Although Asani states that she is setting aside the question of whether theology should be abolished, I want to ponder that question. <laughs> it was too tempting, Asani. <laughs> Asani explains that abolitionist practice is both a struggle against and a struggle for. And also that the spiritual discipline of abolition has always existed in confrontation to American civil religion. I would add that for many, religion itself exists in tension between the official religion and the unofficial religion. As Sylvia Winter argues, while the official religion was a tool for the dehumanization of enslaved peoples, the unofficial religion has had an important role to counter dehumanization steering new imaginaries that exceed those of the world as it is. This paper inspired me to think about theology as practice, rather than only as an academic discipline with established authorities and genres. This might be what Gustavo Gutierrez meant when he defined theology as a hermeneutics of hope and perhaps you're extending that to think about theology as a hermeneutics of hope and freedom. As Azani argues, this would be hope not as optimism, but rather as discipline, cultivating hope and imagining beyond the edges of what is possible. The paper blends different genres of writing 
And I wonder if Azani would like to say more about the role of creative, creative forms of writing in the process of imagining what is. Thank you so much for these insightful and indeed beautiful papers and for inviting me into this great conversation. I really enjoyed learning from your work. Thank you so much, Professor Rivera, for that meditation, which ties together this truly eclectic set of papers. Um, I want to turn it over to you all. Um, you can each take a couple minutes to respond, engage in dialogue, and maybe um, in 10 minutes we can open it up for audience Q&A. Um, first of all, I just want to say like I, f I was like furiously taking notes as all of you were speaking because there's so much um just potency to your words and i um professor rivera the way that you were kind of weaving us together and complicating some of our arguments was really moving and deeply meaningful um i think one piece that i was reflecting on as i was listening to all of you speak um and that i just want to think aloud a little bit about is this notion of um one thing I left out of my presentation was who the we is, <laughs> um, which I talk about in my paper, but I didn't speak to. And the we that I was speaking to is specifically people of my um, lineage. So um, people of uh, descendants of settlers, people who are kind of in a Christian Catholic lineage, who are white, who um, particularly are from kind of the northern part of California, which is a very particular cultural context as well. Um, and this question that you're raising about uh, what it means to relate to land which has been a site of perpetuated and enacted violence over generations and generations and generations, not as a um, kind of washing over of that, that legacy, but rather as a um, discipline, as I need to pull on your language, um, as a discipline and a... And a uh, a kind of call to account for healing. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm trying to like imagine alongside of some of the thinkers and classmates and um, people in this community is what that means in practice. Um, and that is a big question that I sit with. <laughs> so um, mainly I'm just like grateful to continue thinking alongside of all of you about the ways that you're thinking about your embodied practices as it relates to the, the work that you're doing and um, eager to think about the intersections with this idea of place and body and land and God. Um, so I'll leave it there. Thank you so much. I have to go second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it's my turn. So first, I regret. Uh, okay. I guess I guess for the next time, if I have next time, I should give more thought in the future. <laughs> But I would say there's one theme I discovered in all of our paper. And also, um, I'm thinking about what Dr. Rivera asked me to think more. I guess one idea is give dignity. So to give dignity. So I, I mean, you, you talk about that um, place is space making is a, is a spiritual practice. So we give dignity to, to space. And the space gives dignity to us. And uh, 
And if we and if we are in your paper, I mean, you you talk about um, you talk about hope. You talk about education. I think it's also about help. It is also related to help people to recognize dignity. And also for you, Alex, and uh, you give dignity to the body. So people used to diminish body and just to think to think that the body is just a vessel of the soul. But that is not the correct thinking. You push us to think about. I mean, body also has its own dignity. And for my own idea, so be very frank. So. This paper is, more, is meant to be more academic, so it's a part of the Christian studies, but I still choose to, 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 present it here, to present it here. Because I also wanted to give dignity to these this, this Christians. A lot of people simply dis, dismiss them. I mean, both, um, I mean, both a lot of us are overcritical. We think that there are not enough textual evidence so therefore, I mean, as scholars, we could not pay too much attention to that. And uh, in the Chinese academia, people also say, okay, these people just, they are just opportunists. They just wanted to adopt Chinese discourse and just to promote their own religion. But uh, perhaps that is also not true, or at least I can, just as HDS teaches us to do, try to make some meaning. And uh, Dr. Ashrov, Dr. Ashrov always wants to, always pushes, pushes me to think, do you think they are real Chinese Christians? I mean, initially when I received this question, I mean, how could that be possible? They came from elsewhere. But the Dr. Ashrov told me, so he came from Tajikistan. He came from Tajikistan and uh, the Christian community is also neglected there. And as scholar, so it is his duty to bring people's attention to them. And uh, this is also the process of giving, of giving dignity of what we are learning. So even though it is difficult, the texts are limited and we have to go study various language for that. And finally, to answer uh, the question about the physicality of them. First of all, I never, th I never thought about that before. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but I would say for them, the place is real or not is not necessary. For them, is that necessary? I, I, I don't know because these people came to China and uh, they died in China. I never, I never thought about that, and never, and none of them went to, went back to, uh, to where they came from. But later, but there's a story of monk of Kublai Khan about uh, two Syriac monk who, uh, who went back to, um, to their homeland. But that is totally different a story. Well, anyway, I have to think about that. Thank you. Um, thank you all um, for your comments. I have a lot to think about. Can I take this off? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, um, thinking about place and body has been really helpful. I think because I was coming from the perspective of thinking about what you can do when your body and the place that you're in is so restricted yeah. and so confined. And so thinking about, um, yeah, how you can condition your spirit. And then, of course, 
the your body and the place that you're in are transformed and impacted by that um but i think that there's ways that i could like talk about those things um more clearly um so thank you um I did not want to talk about theology. <laughs> Mostly because I don't know what it is. Like, I'm just not a theologian. And I don't feel, like, well-studied enough in theology to even make a claim about, yeah, what theology is. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of tried to skirt around that. Um, I think um, – what I was trying to get at and what I was thinking about um, as it relates to like the interreligious theme of Stendhal is that like this, the state's discipline, although it kind of obviously comes out of this very Christian context, um, can be taken up by people of all religious practices, right? So it doesn't need to be Christianity enforcing the state discipline in the same way that with the abolitionist discipline, it doesn't. It also doesn't need to come out of a Christian context, um, and that these disciplines are very compatible with whatever religious um, orientation you have, um, and so that the discipline is kind of bigger than a particular theology. But again, I don't <laughs> know enough about theology to know if that's like a true statement. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's one piece of my thesis that I really want to explore further and think more about and learn more about um and yeah thinking about the lines between theology ethics morality all of those things um and thinking more about how i could how i could frame this and talk about um, the spiritual dimensions of it um and then yeah so i i wrote a paper but i also made a zine which was very fun um and the zine kind of goes through the elements of the discipline um, and I included a lot of like poetry and things and artwork and things like that in the zine and kind of um, throughout the paper too. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was just kind of a direct um, reflection of the sources that I used. A lot of the sources that I used were zines <coughs> and poetry. Um, and so, yeah, and thinking about like <coughs> this academic paper, I'm sorry that you had to read such a long paper. <laughs> I was like, this is not the way that people um, people inside and people who are concerned about abolition communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. They communicate more creatively, more artistically. Um, and so, yeah, that was definitely really central um, to my work. Um, I'm interested in talking about like more creative, sexy <laughs> ways to, <laughs> to talk about these things. Um, this is on, right? Yeah. Uh, so I really appreciate uh, Professor Rivera and Azani, um, both of you, n n like calling attention to um, to the conflicts in, of, of the body and um, what's at stake politically and, and, and the realities like um, obviously the body is the site of conflict, the body is the site of trauma. Um, it's, it's not all good news, uh, you know. Um, I, what I loved... Um, Azani, in your presentation, was this distinction between state discipline and spiritual discipline? Because the, the word discipline, like, immediately have the you know this aspect of being disciplined and of choosing, um, you know, in our full dignity to discipline ourselves. Like, um, so I, I'm wondering how to apply that um, th that that the the 
the body being disciplined um, in ways that, that, that prevent our flourishing, in ways that are reprehensible um, by the state, and, and ways in which um, the word spiritual is always interesting because spiritual is usually is often contrasted with the body, so it's some way of talking. Spiritual discipline, I'm wondering about what an embodied spiritual discipline is, um, or, or, or just embodied discipline or something in ways that, that counter state disciplining of bodies. Um, that's, that, that's something I would, uh, yeah, would be, would be curious about. And, um, all right. Did you want to? Maybe I want to say yeah. something, something in addition to, to Azani, because the, what I was trying to suggest, um, was more that, that, that you and, and especially the sources that you're reading can be interpreted as doing theology in as if you think about theology as that hermeneutic of hope mm -hmm. and and you know adding the element of freedom then the these creative practices uh, would be interpreted as theological and I'm you know thinking about liberationist thinkers who would argue that um, that that the kind of written theology is a second act, second uh, level in the sense that it emerges from the practices of the community and the reflections of the community. So it seems like something in your work uh, fit um, that, that orientation. Mm. <laughs> All right. Let's give it up one more time for our presenters. I want to thank everyone again for attending. It means a lot for you all to be here. We have some refreshments downstairs. I believe some Mediterranean food, something to sip on too. So please join us downstairs and we can continue the conversation. Sponsor HDS Student Association. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.